Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. Well, this morning we're carrying on our series in Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 2, if you want to turn there, I'm going to start at verse 21. Uh, a passage which tells us that Jesus is eight days old. Now, we're still technically in the middle of the nativity um, play. If you've ever been to see one of those, maybe you've had a kid that's been in a nativity play, maybe you've starred in one, uh, you kind of know how it rolls. And we're right in the middle. The shepherds have been and gone. The angels have played their part. They've sung their tunes. And they're out of the scene, but we're still waiting for the wise men to arrive. There's no sign of them yet. But uh, I don't know about you, but I kind of imagine the, the nativity scene to play out neatly in a 30-minute period that the, the star has drawn everybody to one place at one time and within 30 minutes, everybody goes in, they do the thing, they bring the presents, parade through with the sheep and then they're all done, dusted and they leave Mary and Joseph to get on with life as new parents. From, wise, uh, from, from like innkeeper to wise men all done nice and succinctly and swiftly but that's not the way it goes it the nativity scene kind of spans over probably about a month or so if not months of time and there's a bit in the mid, in the middle of the nativity scene that no play no nativity play has ever included and it's that bit that we're going to look at this morning see at eight days old Mary and Joseph take Jesus on a six-mile trip from Bethlehem into Jerusalem. Why are they going there? Well, Jesus has to be circumcised. I said it. Yes, I did say it. If you don't know what that is, um, see a doctor or your line manager later. That's fine. But let's be honest, it would be super weird for a nativity play to include this bit. You know, the, the, the shepherds come and do their thing and the angels sing and all that lot. There's a big star. And then we sort of segue into another scene where a knife is brought out and they kind of unwrap a baby and they begin to go about some surgery. That would be odd, wouldn't it? And so that kind of gets cut out. Now, it would have been Joseph's responsibility. It's the dad's job to, do the, to, to take the son to be circumcised. So it would have been Joseph's job. He would have taken Jesus to a rabbi. He would have gone into, into, uh, into the city to, to Jerusalem. He probably would have tried to find some other male members because it was like a family tradition. He would have gathered some guys together and gone to see a rabbi. But maybe... Maybe this whole birth has been shrouded in shame. Maybe they try to keep it all quietly, uh, quiet. So maybe he takes Jesus very discreetly to see a local rabbi. It would have been Joseph's first job as an adoptive parent. Having adopted Jesus as his own, it would have been his first job to take his son, this baby Jesus, to see a rabbi. Now, believe it or not, my mum who is not Jewish in any way, decided when my brother was born that she would want him to be included in the Jewish family, the holy nation. So bizarrely, at eight days old, she looked in the yellow pages because the internet didn't exist then, and she rang a local rabbi, and she took my little brother to see a rabbi and had him done. 
how odd is that? My dad just stayed at home and watched telly. And uh, it's just bizarre. We, we can't really explain it. Like, we, we've asked my mum to try and explain what on earth she was thinking about. But she thought it might be good. Um, but this is, so this is Joseph's job. It's supposed to be Joseph takes baby Jesus uh, to be circumcised. The circumcision of Jesus is often overlooked. It's one verse in all of the scripture and all of the gospels, one small verse, but it's super important. Luke wants to include it because he wants us to think about its significance. Firstly, this is where a baby boy receives his name. And the name of Jesus is of great significance. See, Joseph could have decided to call him anything. He could have called him Ian or Gary. But he chose to obey what the, the, the angel Gabriel had told him he had to call him. Do you remember what the angel Gabriel had said? He says this, you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin his name has significance the name Jesus means God saves his name is a prophetic statement and even more than that secondly Jesus is now marked out as a Jew and that is really important for us because we know the Messiah the Christ was prophesied as being a Jew so we need him to be fully Jewish authentically Jewish in every way that means some surgery downstairs but more importantly, the circumcision of Jesus brings him under the Jewish law. Let me explain why that's important. See, the Jews had over 600 uh, laws that they had to keep. They had to follow these laws in order to stay holy or stay faithful. The problem with the Jews was, like all of us, they struggled to follow the rules. And so every time they broke a rule, they then had to do some kind of sacrifice in order to pay for the things that they'd done wrong. And so, uh, you know, that's the way it's always been. And so Jesus needs to come underneath that law so that he can live a perfect life. We talk about Jesus being sinless. He played the perfect game. He never sinned, never missed a beat. And therefore, he can die without sin. According to the law, it was almost impossible. Jesus fulfills what was impossible. He lives this perfect life and he dies the perfect death. And therefore, he pays the price. He is the perfect sacrifice dies once and for all so therefore we need Jesus to be circumcised which said he has to now live according to the law and he nails it he lives perfectly and so the law is applied to him and therefore he fulfills it Jesus says this if there was anybody ever who deserved not to be circumcised and not to have the law applied to him because Jesus didn't need a law in order to live perfectly he was going to do that anyway he shouldn't have needed to go through all that but Jesus says this in Matthew 5 don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill them so he gets uh, he gets a part of the Jewish law. He has to go through this thing as a baby, this awkward bit of surgery, but it, apply, it means the law is applied to him so he can nail it, finish it once and for all. The blood shed in circumcision puts Jesus under the law so that the blood shed on the cross could free us from it. Do you see how important it is? And so we, we skip over it. We don't really ever talk about it. It's supposed to happen according to tradition on the 1st of January, the first day of the year when Jesus first is applied to the law. But yet we overlook at it because it's just kind of a bit awkward. 
That's all in one verse. And so we move to the next verse, 40 days after the birth of Jesus, eight pounds, six ounce, slightly sore baby Jesus is on his way back to Jerusalem for his second visit within a month. Mary and Joseph want to present him to the Lord. Now, you can skip over that thinking that's not significant. I think it's blooming brilliant that Jesus is being presented to God. God the Father and God the Son have been together for eternity. God knows Jesus already. They've met before. But Jesus is now created in the flesh. He's now in mankind. The one who created mankind is now a baby. The immortal one has become mortal. The king of kings is presented to the Lord by poor peasant parents. Do you get the upside down kingdom coming in again? That the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's reigned already forever up until this point is now presented back to God by these poor parents, Mary and Joseph. I imagine them going to the temple, Mary and Joseph kind of rocking up all kind of secretively, not trying to make a fuss, and they've got to present this baby to God and they're like, look who we've got. Here he is. Uh, this is Jesus. But he's now a baby. This is baby Jesus. You should see him, God. You know, that's like a weird thing going on there. That the, the, the one who's reigned forever is kind of wrapped in baby clothes and they're like, da-da. We've got him. We've got your kid. He's called Jesus. But before Mary can enter the temple, she's got to be cleansed. This was a Jewish rule. Everybody who had had a baby has got to wait a set period of time. Those differ for male and female for some reason we won't go into today. But 40 days after, she has to cleanse herself because she's given birth. And so she has to make a sacrifice. Now, ordinary families, this is everyday regular families would go in and they'd sacrifice a lamb. But the poorest families, those who can't afford a lamb would be able to buy a pair of doves or a pair of pigeons. Mary and Joseph cannot afford a lamb. What does that tell you about them? They can't afford a lamb, so they pick up a couple of cheap pigeons. They are poor. Get over it. God trusts his only son, the saviour of the world, to poor people. How incredible is this kingdom? They pay the minimum. The birth of the Messiah is consecrated by two scruffy pigeons. Have you seen pigeons? Their feet seem to fall off. The rank. But thank you, God, there's no lavish, great, grand ceremony. I was reading the other day about the christening of royal children. Like, I think it's Prince Louis has just been done. He, he, he was dressed in a gown that 62 other royal babies have worn. They christened him in water that had been flown from the River Jordan. They dipped his head in a silver-gilted font which was lavishly decorated with lilies and cherubs. Silver encrusted thing. My king, my king got a couple of dead pigeons. 
I love it. I really love it. My king got a couple of dead pigeons. What does it tell you? That our God, God the Father, would rather use poor, obedient parents than rich, disobedient people. Our kingdom favours the faithful, not the fortunate. This is the upside down kingdom. They have a job to do and they have to be faithful to it. God was reliant on parents who would put Jesus under the law. See, that's a bit of a mad thing that God, the eternal, would rely on these poor people in order to get the whole, whole um, like rescue, redemption plan of Christ going. Like he's born into their arms and they have to then take him through this journey to enable him to get started. they the ones that have to see him circumcised. They're the one that has to present him to uh, the Lord in the temple. They have to cleanse themselves in order to get right before God. They have to dedicate him to the Lord. This is special and I love how God entrusts his rescue plan to these young parents who are not fortunate but they are faithful God chooses the faithful not the fortunate and it gets better than that see in the temple there's these two old people the first one is Simeon and he's epic the scripture says uh, some great things about him so it's not often that you read scriptures that tell you about a person's character but Simeon is one of the only people who get kind of called out on what they're like he is righteous and devout And it says he's been waiting for the rescue of Israel and the Holy Spirit is on him. You know, in a a time in the world where nobody is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is on this guy. It's absolutely brilliant. And best of all, the Holy Spirit has kind of whispered in his ear that before he dies, he's going to see the Messiah. How ace is this? My gran was convinced she was going to see Jesus return before she died, but she didn't. But this guy has had the Holy Spirit whisper, because she died, but this guy has had the Holy Spirit whisper in his ear, he's he's never going to die until the day the Messiah is seen. So he wakes up confidently thinking, I've either got the greatest day ahead of me or I'm going to live forever. So like, he wakes up each day thinking, I'm a day closer to death, but I'm a day closer to meeting the Messiah, the saviour of the world. It's awesome. He's got no idea what it would look like. Imagine being Simeon. You, you'd, like, you'd be looking everywhere. Is he the Messiah? No. Is he the Messiah? No. Each and every day he's expectantly seeking God's like, fulfilment of his promise to him. The guy just keeps focusing on the Lord. Nothing else matters to him. He knows the Spirit intimately. The Spirit is on him. The Spirit is with him. The Spirit is speaking to him. And it's the Spirit that draws him uh, to the temple that day. I wonder what it was like. I wonder if he jumped out of bed and felt, today's the day. Like, how exciting would that be? You feel an Something tells me I should go to the temple today. You'd be like, this is it. Imagine the one thing that you've been waiting for your entire life and you just get an inkling that that's the day. And so he makes his, you know, I wonder if he thought, I'm going to put my best clothes on or whatever. He's, he's like on the way to the temple to meet his promise, the saviour 
is on his way, full of expectant. He's led to the temple. The Holy Spirit leads. The question is, if we have that same spirit with us, where is he leading you? The Holy Spirit is with us. He speaks to us and he leads us. Where is he leading you today? Are you full of anticipation about where the Spirit might take you? What he might reveal to you today? The Spirit is the same Spirit and he's with us. That day, Simeon stands waiting in the temple. Waiting. Today, the Messiah will come. And in walks two peasant parents carrying a bundle in their arms. And Simeon knows instantly, there, there is the Messiah. He's not dressed like a warrior. He's not dressed like a king. He's dressed in baby clothes held by poor parents. Straight over. He makes a beeline for Jesus. He kind of takes the baby. I hope he asks politely. But you know, you know those old people you get in your church that, that see a baby and like, bing, laser eyes. They like grab the baby, walk off. They're having a cup of tea while they're like nursing your child. I think Simeon's like that. He just like grabs the baby. But as soon as he holds the baby, what overflows is this joyful worship. This praise just kind of pours out of his mouth. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light of revelation to the Gentiles, not just the Jews, that's really important. And the glory of your people, Israel. He doesn't say, holding this baby, sovereign Lord, I'm a bit confused. All I see is a scruffy couple and their baby. He doesn't say, I see salvation but I'd like to see it fulfilled. He doesn't say, Lord, please can I have a few more days so I can see this kid grow to be a man. He doesn't say, can I see the salvation come in its fullness? Can I see him nailed to a cross? Can I see him raised from the dead? He says in faith right now, here is the hope of salvation. This is a statement of faith. Holding the baby in his arms, he says, here is the hope of salvation. I am happy to die. As you have promised, you may dismiss, you may kill your servant in peace. Done. His life's over. His mission is complete. He was promised that he would see the salvation come. And he holds this baby and goes, that'll do. That'll do. I'm happy. Life fulfilled. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you? Not that you hold salvation in your arms, but having received the salvation of God, that would do for you. Life complete. You've seen salvation. You've seen it in your life and you've seen it in the lives of others. Is that enough for you to live by? Happy to die. What awesome faith. And it says Mary and Joseph marvel. They don't marvel in the fact that this cheeky old guy takes their baby and starts to sing. They marvel at his faith. They are shocked at the level of faith that this old boy has got. Takes the baby Jesus in his arms and he says, this is salvation. Salvation has come. Great faith is something to marvel at. Take a look around you. If you know people of great faith, marvel 
be in awe of people of great faith. There is something incredible about people who live by faith. He didn't have an extraordinary life, Simeon. We don't know anything about his achievements, but his life is defined by this moment where he holds salvation in his arms. And then there's one other person there, the prophet Anna, brilliant Anna. Don't you love Luke? Already we're only on chapter two and he's told us about great women of the Bible. You know, we've, we've had Sarah, we've had, uh, we've had Anna, we've had Mary already. This is a gospel where women are really, really brought to the forefront. We don't know much about her. We know she's got a father called Penuel. I don't know why they bother telling us because he's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. Apart from that, his name means I've seen the face of God, which might be important in a minute. She's a widow and she served in the temple day and night. That's all we know. She's been praying and fasting since uh, she, her husband died. He died seven years after she'd married him. She's now 84. She's been there forever. There's no drama with Anna. She's got a pretty boring life. Pretty ordinary life. But she sees Jesus. She, sees, she gets to see Jesus. She's been in the temple for 60 odd years. Nothing Nothing exciting has happened in that time. But she's there. She's there, faithfully seeking. She, I don't think she knew. I don't think she knew that that day she was going to see Jesus. She just went like she went every day, pursuing the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom of God. She was in the right place at the right time to see the Messiah because she was pursuing God with all of her life. And when she sees him, she thanks God. And then she tells everybody. But she's, oh, she's 84. I wonder if people are like, she's a bit mad. She, she never really left the temple, so she's probably gone a little bit nuts. So we'll just not really listen to her. I reckon lots of people just say, Anna is that mad one. She had a bit of an experience in the temple, and all she talks about now is having seen God. So why does Luke bother telling us about the golden oldies? Why would, he, why would God bother using an old guy to see the Messiah who was going to die the next day? Because I'm pretty confident Simeon held the baby, sang his song, handed him back, went home and croaked it. Like, he said, you can take me now. He's promised that he would see the Messiah and then he'd probably go. He's already, you know, he dies probably within 24 hours. What a waste. Surely that's a waste. God could have told someone younger who could have been and followed Jesus from like day one and told everybody everywhere, why would you waste this experience on an old fella with less than 24 hours to live? Well, God is pointing to what is important in his kingdom. Our kingdom is for the old and the ordinary people of faith. The old and the ordinary people of faith. Faith is the currency of the upside down kingdom. God loves faithful people. See Luke points to Mary and Joseph, penniless peasants paying the minimum. Luke points to Simeon, the old infirm fella with one day left of his life who is faithfully waiting for a glimpse of the saviour. Luke points to Anna, the old ordinary widow who has not left the temple for decades. 
She's done the same thing each and every day for the past 60 years. She has no family, no home, nothing, but yet she is full of faith. God uses these people to dedicate and consecrate his only son, the saviour of the world. The tiny thanksgiving service in the temple that day is beautiful. The world would overlook all of them. The world would not look at Mary and Joseph. The world would pay no attention to Simeon. The world would not be interested in Anna. They are not successful. They are not prosperous. They are not glamorous. They are odd. They are ordinary. And they are old. But they are faithful people. Faithfully worshipping. Faithfully seeking the kingdom first. God delights in faithfulness, in those who seek him, in those who follow him, and in those who serve him. God takes our faithfulness and our obedience, and with it, he builds his kingdom. The building blocks of the kingdom are our faithfulness and our obedience. Hebrews 11.1, that famous verse, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. They didn't see the fulfillment of salvation, but yet they had faith holding a baby that they believed salvation had come. This is what the ancients were commended for. This is what that list in, in Hebrews 11 goes on to say from Abel through Enoch and Abraham and all those characters listed about what their, faithful, what their faith led them to do. By faith, I reckon it would say, Joseph adopted Jesus as his own. By faith, he circumcised him a Jew. By faith, he named him Jesus. By faith, he placed him under the law. By faith, Mary consecrated herself and made herself clean in the temple. By faith, she presented him to the Lord. By faith, Simeon was waiting for a Messiah. By faith, he recognized salvation in the face of a child. By faith, Anna fasted and prayed every day for 60 years. By faith, she told all about the coming king. By faith, Christ loves faithful people so what does it say about you how is your faith today what will be written about you by faith add your name what is faith causing you to do because faith takes the ordinary and makes us extraordinary faith is what takes us from the everyday and the mundane to making and living lives of significance what are you faithfully pursuing what impact is faith having on the direction of your life? What difference will faith make to your approach to living today? How is faith impacting how you spend yourself? My concern is, you know, that we live for one high to the next. My concern about this generation is that we want life to always be awesome, for everything to be amazing all the time. I was told to go and speak at a youth conference with the title, Go Big or Go Home. I'm concerned about that message. That says we've got to be doing awesome, extreme and radical things all the time. I think we're called to faithfulness and obedience each and every day, seeking first the kingdom of God. That's far more costly. That's far more costly than the radical and the extreme. I remember I used to, um, 
I used to have a number of people that would want to come and visit my neighborhood. I'd call it the zoo tour because people would want to see dangerous things in a safe way. They'd park up and ask if their car would be okay to be left. And then I'd parade them around the streets and I'd tell them stories of things that had happened, gory things, you know, you know, and scary things, but I, and I'd point out where prostitutes live or drug dealers live and, and, and where things had happened or where amazing things, God moments had happened. And I remember at one particular time, having finished up this tour, dropped everybody off, and I felt like God said to me, you know what, Sam, you've been there 18 years, and uh, you've only got 18 stories. That's like one exciting story every year. Like, that's one day out of 365 days where something extraordinary happens, and you seem to be living by the extraordinary moments. Did I not have a plan and a purpose for every day of the year? That's 364 of a days that you seem to be ignoring. And I felt like God say, you need to find me in the ordinary. Max Licardo says that God dances amidst the ordinary. It's in our faithfulness in the ordinary every day that God is building his kingdom. I think it was someone here last week that said, I can't live in the mountaintop experience because there's not enough air up there. I don't know who it was who said, sometimes we need to head back to the valley. It's, 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 it's there that we, in the ordinary mundane days, that God is building his kingdom through us. Sometimes we live for the momentary highs. And I think his word to us is this, pursue me, seek first the kingdom of God in the everyday and the ordinary Simeon and Anna went about ordinary days. She did the same thing, the prophet Anna, every day for 60 years. Nothing to write home about. Her life isn't defined by the moment she held Christ, but by her faithful pursuit of the kingdom of God. What is your life being defined about? Are you living for that next high, that great moment, or are you looking for Christ and his kingdom every day live by faith guys let's pray thanks for listening don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams 